thanks to our generous mates at Chisholm Clark for sponsoring this episode of our podcast. Trust Chisholm Clark with your next move, New Zealand's specialist legal search firm. Kia ora e te whanau, Heidi Mai, and welcome to this episode of the What A Lawyer podcast. I'm your host, Sam Lindsay from Chisholm Clark, and joining me today is a legend in his own right. Having attended the University of Otago, he started his professional career in tourism and management for six years before becoming a lecturer in the same space. For the next 11 years, he continued this pursuit of lecturing, but in a slightly different area of health and environmental sciences, then sports law and ethics. Finding his passion for the law, he spent the next four years working towards achieving first-class honours in law from the Auckland University of Technology, earned the Dean's List Award for the highest grade across employment law, family law and judicial review, and picked up the SBM Legal Prize for the top student in employment law. Stepping out of law school, he opened his own employment practice for three years, then spent two years in advisory and dispute resolution at Mangere Law, a further one and a half years as a senior associate at Legal Vision, and now a senior associate and head of employment at Young Hunter in Christchurch. He's been featured in the National Business Review, discussing matters on sexual harassment, workplace grievances, wage subsidies and redundancies, and loves his water-based sports and swimming, water polo and rowing. What a lawyer, it's Jared Elwell. Welcome. Thank you, Sam. What an amazing introduction. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, welcome, Jared, and, and thanks for being with us today. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some avid employment law listeners tuning into this one. So before we kick off, uh, what have you been up to lately? Well, just uh, probably not too exciting, but um, fairly busy in terms of getting up and running with my new employer, which is Young Hunter Lawyers uh, based in Christchurch. I'm based in Auckland. So we've been getting set up and getting sort of structures in place and I've been getting familiar with their systems and processes and, and their clients. And so, yeah, that's really taken up uh, most of the last few months, just sort of getting up to speed with that and uh, working working on the, those things. Excellent, cool. Well, look, before we kick into today's topic, we obviously had a, a pretty quick summary of your background and at the start, and, and but for our listeners out there, would you be able to take us through a slightly more detailed journey of your experience to date? Sure. In, in terms of uh, being a lawyer as, as such, is that what you'd be interested in? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I was always interested in law from, from a young age, and uh, I did have a, have a go at it uh, initially studying law at Otago. And then, as you um, noted in detail, had a few different career paths between then and now. And one of the ways that I sort of transitioned into law was actually doing some advocacy work. And so that was as not as a lawyer, but employment advocacy, which employment is one of the interesting areas where it is not regulated to just lawyers who can represent clients. And one of the fortunate opportunities I had, I guess, while I was still studying law was to be able to start getting up to speed with how employment law works and be able to actually practice in that area without being a, a practicing lawyer. So 
once I did get my practicing certificate, I felt that I already had a few years of experience under my belt, plus some prior other experience in litigation and other areas. But I did have a, a level of specialization in employment law. So I think that gave me a, a bit of a head start on, on perhaps people just coming out of university and trying to find out what, what they could do and, and starting right at the bottom. So I sort of felt I was able to perhaps leapfrog them and get into a, a reasonable level of seniority straight away. Excellent. And so talk us through how you actually began e-law. I mean, if that was your first role coming out of university, it's obviously slightly different than some that might um, go into private practice, for example. Um, are you able to talk us through that a wee bit more? Yes, yeah, certainly. So e-law is essentially an employment advocacy firm, and that's where I, I did my advocacy work and started uh, working mostly with employee clients because a lot of that area of work is working for employees who might not have the financial resources to be able to pay an hourly rate for lawyers to represent them. So uh, probably most people are aware that there is a, a no win, no fee industry out there. Uh, if they've Googled anything around employment law, they'd see some of those names pop up, uh, some of those businesses mm. pop up in those offerings. And so I, I started in that area, but it's very accessible. You get plenty of clients and you're able to do a lot of work. I was able to be connected with the Mangere Community Law Centre, which I thought was a, was a wonderful experience. And I have continued my contacts with them uh, even even since I've moved on from doing work with them. So I was essentially able to dovetail um, through a national business um, that referred work to me, as well as the Mangere Community Law Centre, and also them generating more clients by referral. So that was that was all prior to actually getting my practicing certificate, because once you get your practicing certificate, you, you do need to be supervised by a, a senior lawyer within a firm. So uh, once I was practicing, then I needed to come under the umbrella of an established lawyer or, or an established firm. Excellent. And so that took you to Legal Vision. Is that essentially where you began that journey? Uh, it actually began again with a, a sort of a branch of the Mangere Community Law Centre, although the community law centre is the, the main function there. They also have a commercial law firm that offers property, wills, trusts, and some other work there, which is Mangere Law Limited. So some of my work was with them initially as a lawyer when I first got my practicing certificate. And not long after, though, I did uh, get a role with Legal Vision, which is a uh, Australasian uh, law firm that offers a slightly different model from your traditional law firm. And uh, they're um, quite quite sort of uh, unique in, in the way that they do things. Excellent. Cool. And obviously that brings us up to speed now uh, for um, your most recent experience at Young Hunter, where you've just been describing getting set up and getting ready to roll. So, look, thank you so much for, for sharing that little extra piece of detail um, around your experience. Now, uh, on the show, we obviously like to have a, a topic or a, or a purpose, so to speak, um, for each episode. And today is no different. It's all about employment law and delayed justice. Now, one of the obvious places for us to start would be your recent response to the ACT Party's proposed uh, legislative changes uh, with regard to the Employment Relations Authority. Um, are you able to bring us up to speed on what you're seeing there? Yes. So ACT came out quite surprisingly. Uh, I mean, it is the election cycle, so it's not surprising to see election policies come out, but they did come out with quite major policies in terms of how they'd like to reform the Employment Relations Authority. And just going back a step, the Employment Relations Authority is where 
people end up if they're not able to resolve their issues by negotiation or through mediation. So usually the steps are if someone has an issue with their employment, they raise it with their employer or their employer raises it with them. And then if it's not able to be resolved, usually the parties end up in mediation. If that doesn't succeed, then the next step and the first sort of formal legal process really is the Employment Relations Authority. And that's where a few cases go, it's a small percentage of the overall cases, but it is where most of the cases heard are, are taken and usually don't go any further than that. The next step is to the Employment Court and then to the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court, and very few cases go that far uh, due to costs, essentially, even though people might not be entirely happy with, with what happened. Uh, the Act Party suggested that the they would require the ERA to deliver its written determinations within a month of holding the investigation meeting. So the investigation meeting is like a hearing. So they have a little bit of different terminology there because it's not a it's not a formal court as such, uh, like the district court or the high court is. It's a court of special jurisdiction, and they felt, I assume, based on feedback from employers, that it was taking too long to get decisions. So that was the first plank of their policy, and the second one was that the the remedies against the employer would be removed if an employee, from an employee if the employee had contributed in any way to the problem. And the third was a ban on the Employment Relations Authority being able to reinstate an employee after a personal grievance or a dismissal. So three quite major policy planks. And as I mentioned, it depends a lot of the, obviously on the outcome of the election as to uh, whether these run or not and what coalition agreement is formed if National is part of the government and ACT is, is, is their coalition partner. But interesting to discuss these issues, I think, in terms of what may or may not happen or what the underlying issues are with the ERA. Cool. Thank you. For, thank you so much for that. If we're able to sort of go in a wee bit deeper now, um, and just look at those three points um, that were proposed and perhaps your insight or response to each of those points. If we look at number one and thinking that uh, delivering determinations within one month, um, is that, I mean, is that realistic? And is that actually going to achieve the outcome that is missing, so to speak? And what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think. Quicker decisions are not always better decisions, but having said that, a balance needs to be struck with, between the speed of delivery of judgments and the thoroughness of them. And that is something that's an issue for the ERA. In the legislation, they are required to publish their determinations or their decisions within 90 days. And so that's a statutory requirement. And most of them are released within 90 days. And that's, that's approximately three months, which again, is not a great amount of time to wait uh, for an important decision, but there is a cumulative effect. So I suspect that some of the feedback that the ACT Party was getting was from employers saying, hey, well, someone raised a personal grievance with me and, you know, it took me two and a half years to get a decision um, that I hadn't done anything wrong or that I needed to, to pay a small amount. That's too long. And I think I, I think ACT have, have sort of zeroed in on oh, well, how long are these decisions taking? Maybe that's an issue, that's something we could speed up. But there's a number of other steps in that process which certainly do add to the length of the delays. And one of them is just having your case allocated to a member. Now, I think they are taking steps to improve this. They've appointed new members and they're trying to get through these more quickly. But 
when you do file in the ERA, it sort of sits in a pool and your case needs to be allocated to a member. And sometimes that can take a number of weeks, if not months. So there is a delay there. And then there are also delays in getting a, a hearing date. And that depends on the availability of a member. And that can, again, can take months. And so you, you have this sort of cumulative effect where probably employers and employees get to the end of the process and they say that that whole thing took two, two and a half years and that was way too long. Should it be shorter? And I think the, the obvious answer to that is yes, that, that time period should be shorter. The ERA was set up as a relatively informal legal authority, which could make decisions and give people the the outcome reasonably quickly, perhaps faster than a district court or a high court would. But it seems that for a variety of reasons, that's not happening, perhaps as, as was envisaged initially. Mm, okay. And it's an interesting point because if you take the subject matter of, of a grievance, for example, there's obviously quite a lot of emotion that's tied up in something like that. So getting answers quickly is naturally what everyone wants, but in reality, it doesn't quite work like that, it sounds. So if you were to put your problem-solving hat on, on this point here, uh, are you able to suggest a couple of different ideas or ways that this could be resolved? Yes, I do feel that the ERA has become very legalistic and very formalised in a way, and that's a strange thing to say as a lawyer because we live in that space of, of legal processes and documentation and all of these things that uh, probably most people are um, not that excited by um, other than what they see in, in sort of Hollywood depictions of, of court. But the the processes, the documents that you need to file and, and everything that's required does sort of slow down the system. And I had some personal thoughts and I've shared them with other lawyers and not all of them uh, agree with me, but I do think that a lower level informal resolution process beyond mediation might work. So I think it should be noted that around 80% of cases are settled in mediation. So mediation mm. does work very effectively to resolve many employment issues, but it's this sort of hardcore perhaps of another 10 to 20% that aren't resolved that end up going to the ERA where they are waiting a long time. And I have clients, as you pointed out, Sam, I, I have clients who they they are living, you know, sort of day to day with this thing hanging over their head as to whether they're going to get an award, get what they thought they should have, or going to have to pay someone that they don't want to pay and, and how that's going to work. And it's it's hard to live with these things. It's emotional, it's financial, and it's very stressful for people. Definitely, I agree. Thanks for that, Jared. And if we were to dive into that second point that you raised um, around uh, employers perhaps re receiving some reduced penalties um, if an unjustified dismissal was caused by an employee's behaviour. Now, that to me sounds like a can of worms because how long is a piece of string? So are you able to unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, and this is probably one of the more concerning areas. Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of either, any of these policies actually uh, being that just or effective if they are implemented, but this is one that sort of raised my eyebrows in a way because employment relationships are relationships between parties and the 
who in any relationship that breaks down is without any fault whatsoever. Uh, and, uh, and I think to just sort of say, well, if we can find a single thing that the employee did that wasn't exactly what they should have done, then they don't get anything. I think that's, that's really quite punitive in a way. And there already is provision where the Employment Relations Authority must look at contribution. So if they find in the favour of an employee of an employee, they must also look and see, well, did the employee contribute to, to the situation? If the employer was found to have fired them unjustly, well, you know, did they do some things that, that might have made it difficult for the employer to do something else? And so there's a percentage of contribution that's considered. So there already is that factor, um, but just to simply disqualify anyone's claim because they may not have uh, done everything correctly. Seems a little bit uh, draconian and regressive uh, to me anyway. <laughs> mm. It certainly sounds like it's, um, you know, a he said, she said sort of situation. And, you know, within the law, obviously, those that doesn't really seem to work that well. So, you know, I mean, do you have any solution to that? Well, the, the current system in this respect, I think works fairly well because, the, you know, the test is what a fair and reasonable employer could have done in the circumstances at the time. And then if they are found to have acted unreasonably at the time in breach of law, then compensation's looked at. And as I mentioned, if the employee did a whole lot of things along the lines of uh, making the situation worse, uh, then then their award will, will be reduced. So I suspect that act may not have spoken to sort of many employees on the other side of these things and a lot of their information might be coming from employers and the cases cited are quite interesting because i i do see that there would have been very straightforward solutions to some of the issues that they actually cited in their policy as examples of why the law needed to change mm, i see okay and so if we go one level deeper on that and understand that an investigation is likely to take place should something like this actually happen. Um, for our listeners out there, would you be able to describe what an investigation like that, for example, could look like? An employment investigation? Yeah. Yeah. So the, in terms of the employer managing an employee um, and investigating issues, there, there is quite a bit of a, a process involved. So that is where they need to notify the employee of the problem um, that's done. They need to have documentation around what the issue is. They need to provide a, an opportunity for them to respond. And then they need to consider that response and investigate matters fully before they make a decision. Where a lot of employers fall over is where they have got to a stage where they're probably a bit angry and frustrated with employees, uh, their employee at the time and they rush the process or they prejudge something and there's numerous cases out there where the employer has decided effectively to terminate the employment and haven't listened haven't actually spoken to other people or haven't got any sort of response from the employee before making a decision and that is where employers will trip up by by not following the process and essentially failing that that fair and reasonable employer test Mm. So essentially, employers 
basically need to follow a process to a T in order to protect themselves against something like this. Yeah, and they don't need to be perfect. So th this is a, the other sort of misnomer, I guess, that's um, that saying, saying, well, you know, if an employer does anything wrong, then they're up for, for costs and uh, legal fees, etc. And yet if an employee does something wrong, they still get an award. So, you know, in a very simplistic way, that seems to be some of their positioning around it. But mm. the employer doesn't have to be perfect. They can have minor errors in their process as long as it didn't disadvantage the employee. So the premise of the Employment Relations Act is that it's an unequal relationship, that the power really sits with the employer because the employer controls whether someone is employed or not, and they obviously control the purse strings as to whether they're paid or not. And so that, that unequal balance of power is uh, attempted to be sort of redressed somewhat through the legislation. So I think that's where perhaps some employers feel that they're, you know, they're at a disadvantage when issues are raised because of that sort of premise of the unequal, um, unequal strengths relative between the parties. I see. Thanks for that. And so the final point that we discussed was um, the ERA potentially banning, um, uh, or sorry, ban the ERA from reinstating an employee after a personal grievance or a dismissal of sorts. Um, how, how do you want to address that one? Yeah, well, this is an interesting one where it's actually noted as the primary remedy. So if you are terminated in your employment and you raise an issue around it, which is raised through a personal grievance, then the primary remedy under the legislation is to reinstate. So that's what you would ask for is reinstatement. Now, it's very seldom asked for and it even uh, even less uh, less frequently is it uh, given and that's usually because by the time the parties have got to litigation it's the, the relationship is broken down and there's also a lot of hurdles to get over for an employee to be reinstated and uh, the the principle i guess going back a step or two the principle is that we want we want people to keep employment employment is an, is an important relationship for for people and to be employed is, is something that most of us want to to do and most of us want to keep our jobs if we can so i guess i'm i'm, I'm just paraphrasing here that the premise is that if something goes wrong but the employee is not at fault then they should be uh, able to to return to that job and there have been one or two cases where reinstatement has been awarded as a remedy and it seems as if it wasn't quite the best uh, fit at that time and there was a, an issue with the Canterbury District Health Board uh, reinstating one of their senior medical specialists in a role where there had been issues with other staff and uh, I think that was most unpopular and sort of seen as a, as a little bit um, of an overreach perhaps by the ERA at the time. But if an employer really doesn't want someone to be reinstated. They can raise issues around uh, the amount of time that's elapsed. So that can be one reason not to reinstate someone, um, whether they can be integrated back into the team or not. And just an overall judgment as to whether it's reasonable or not. So I, I don't see it as a, as a major sort of issue in our system. It's a, it's a remedy that's there. Uh, it, it is used from time to time and employers don't like it sometimes, um, but they also can raise objections to it. In many of the cases I've had, the employees have raised the objections up front and on the other side of the table, 
the employees have said, well, yeah, I, I don't really want to go back there anyway um, because of what's happened. So I don't think it's a major issue that, that needs to be addressed. Sure. Okay. And so if we're able to put your solutions hat on again, and let's just say opposed to banning the ERA from doing something like this, uh, is there an alternative method that you could suggest or you've seen work or have some kind of positive outcome um, for any parties that are involved in something like this? I think the reality is that by the time parties get to the ERA, usually it's perhaps been 6, 12, 18 months after the, the issues have occurred and the employment's been terminated. Um, there are options to apply for interim reinstatement, but by the time it's got to that stage, I, I do think that most employers can probably justify the fact that reinstatement is just not a suitable remedy in the circumstances uh, because of the time that's elapsed. So I, I do think, um, even though I'm, I'm trying to be creative here and think of other <laughs> other possible ways to, to solve the issue, I, I do, do think it works generally pretty well. And there, there may or may not be some sort of uh, tweaking around that but i guess the principle is that that people are entitled to work under certain conditions and that an employer needs a needs a good reason to to terminate that employee and one of the things they risk when they do terminate them is that they may be reinstated so i i, I think it's just just something to to be aware of and, and, and to be conscious of but yeah i have seen a couple of decisions where i think it probably wasn't the best solution in in the circumstances but it's a really difficult one sam because you know what do you do when when someone has a career that's that's intrinsically linked to an organization uh, and I, I go back to the case of the medical specialist at the canterbury dhb you know there may not be many other employment options for that person and if their employer doesn't want them back where do they go and what what do they do uh, short of moving countries or or moving to uh, another part of new zealand Mm, wow. I mean, gosh, we could talk about this all day, Jared. Honestly, yeah. there's there's yeah. so much there to unpack. But um, unfortunately, you know, we are a wee bit cut for, cut for time. So what we will do is move on to our, our quickfire segment now, um, where I've just got five questions that have been um, put together. And I know you obviously haven't prepared for these. So we're looking for your most genuine first answers, all right? So um, first, first question here is, who is someone that you look up to and why? I really looked up look up to senior practitioners, and there's a range of them. Uh, and and I guess it's because I, I model I try to model myself on on the things that they do well. So yeah, there's there's a number of senior employee employment lawyers that I that I really look up to. I, I know that's a bit of a bland answer, but um, oh, that's yeah. okay. Look, you do. It's totally fine. And look, what's something you do for you, and why? I really like to get out with my greyhound. I have a adopted retired racing greyhound and I really like to get out with her onto the beach and leave my phone and devices behind um, for a, a little block of time and just try to appreciate the little things and, uh, and, and watch how she enjoys the little things because I think it's easy to get, uh, to get too caught up in the, in the minutiae of our, of our lives. And um, yeah, it's refreshing to see a, a different perspective. What an answer. Couldn't agree more, by the way. Um, and so why did you choose to specialise in uh, the area of employment law? 
I'm very interested in personal relationships. So part of the background of my area of study was psychology and I'm interested in human behavior. And I'm also interested in sort of issues around class and socioeconomic matters and the law. And I sort of feel that they, they sort of come together here because it's very much relationship driven, this, this area of law. And then it's also very much affected by whatever government is in at the time and, and what policies they pass, as we've been talking about, the possible changes uh, if ACT mm-hmm. becomes part of the government. And it, it, it's also a slightly less formal way where I am able to resolve a lot of disputes through what we call the alternative dispute resolution. You know, not everything needs to go to court. 95% of my cases are probably settled without going to court. And I think that's usually a, a win-win for, for clients in terms of trying to get matters resolved uh, without it, their dirty laundry being eaten public and um, being able to get a solution and allowing them to move on because I see clients who are stuck and then um, once the case is settled, they, they feel liberate, liberated and able to move forward and that's really satisfying. Good sense of achievement, I'm sure. Um, next question is, what is something you wish law school had better prepared you for when entering the real world? Ah, that's a good question. And that's something I've actually been thinking about, even though you haven't prepped me for these questions. And I think it's <laughs> client management. Client management, because that is not something they teach you in law school. And yet it is probably a massive part of the job. And if you if you don't get it right, then the job can be very, very stressful. Uh, And if you do get it right, you can be very, very successful as a lawyer. But it is challenging because every person is different and they have different expectations. And yeah, that that area is something that I think there could definitely be a a paper or two on uh, with some practical focus at, at law school. Excellent, thank you. And final question from our Quickfire Five is, what is a piece of advice that you would give to a young Gerard? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I think to to be persistent, not to be put off by failure. I think I've tended to see uh, failure as, as sort of a, an end point, whereas I think most successful people have experienced a, a number of failures in their lives. And... Um, I mean, failure is a very pejorative term, of course, but I, I mean, just not, not achieving what they wanted to achieve at the time and then trying something different. So I think uh, that, that persistence and having, having an element of determination and not, not being put off by initial setbacks is something that I, I would have liked to have told my younger self. Wow. And, and what a note to end on. Um, look, before we sign off, uh, uh, a quick thank you to our supporters, our listeners, subscribers and sponsors without you guys uh, you know this cool little show wouldn't be worth much um, if you guys have any feedback on this episode um, please leave us a rating so we can produce more of the kinds of conversations you want to hear and keep an eye out for many more episodes like this one um, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and the best for last massive thank you again to our wonderful guest Gerard Elwell uh, for joining us on the podcast today and sharing some amazing insight into New Zealand employment law I know I've learned heaps today from this short 30-minute conversation and and hopefully some more listeners out there did too. So, ladies and gentlemen, Jared Alwell, what a lawyer. Thank you, Sam. It's been a real pleasure.